Well, open your Bibles with me as we go to what has long been considered by many throughout church history as the soldier's psalm. The soldier's psalm. A psalm, as we shall see, has been a comfort and a stronghold to countless individuals who find themselves battling in wartime and resting upon God as if their lives depended on it. So listen as I read the powerful message of Psalm 91. Psalm 91. The psalmist writes, He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will take refuge. His truth is is a large shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, and no plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because... He has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation." Well, it's probably no surprise, even as I read that psalm before you, that it's called the soldier's psalm. Because as you listen to the imagery, as I spoke, clearly that is what we see. Here is a believer who needs shelter because, as he says, of the snares and the pestilence of those who are around him, the forces outside of him, as he shouts out, if you will, a battle cry of allegiance to his commander-in-chief. Here, in these words, is the terror at night and the arrows by day that create this ancient context of war. The battlefield of this war is within this text, where thousands and ten thousands are falling all around the believer as they fix their eyes on the wicked enemy that is before them who cannot escape what is due them, in other words, their destruction. Here, in these words, we see the battle plan where divine reinforcements arrive to protect the believer from lions and serpents, a picture of intense trouble and intense fear. And here, we see in the final rescue a permanent victory given to believers, this believing soldier, as God himself speaks of the believer being his trophy of triumph, and the battle lines have been erased and warfare has now ceased. So therefore, it's easy, I think, with that kind of insight to see how a psalm of this kind of warlike magnitude might have been seen 
as the soldiers saw them throughout centuries. It's said that many soldiers in World War I recited this psalm daily. I found a circulating a story that tells of a brigade commander in World War I that gave a little card with Psalm 91 written on it to his men because the brigade was the same number, the 91st Brigade. They agreed to recite the psalm daily, and the story goes that after they started praying this little prayer, they were involved in three of the bloodiest battles in World War I, yet suffered no casualties in combat despite their other brigades suffering as much as 90% loss. Not only was this psalm used by soldiers in World War II as well, but even in Iraq, Psalm 91 was continuously used, so much so that it motivated a woman named Jill Boyce of Plano, Texas, to provide bandanas to each of the soldiers with Psalm 91 printed on it, to every military member because she had a dream about Psalm 91. There's a new story about a Marine from Oak Ridge, North Carolina, who was hit several times with rounds of sniper fire. His Kevlar helmet saved his life in that one still buried in the helmet and not in his brain. Because of that, his mom had given him a green card with a Psalm 91 printed on it. So therefore, he concluded that when she asked where the card was, he had said, I'd lost it. It was torn out of my helmet. It was blown off in the attack, thereby giving him even more encouragement to believe that it was due to this psalm. After the attacks of September 11th, you could see bumper stickers, if you remember, of U.S. flags with the words Psalm 91 printed across them. President Trump during a National Day of Prayer, said in a speech, as we come to our Father in prayer, we remember the words found in Psalm 91. And then he quoted, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him I will trust. So clearly Psalm 91 comes to us with history of providing soldiers the motivation to press on because they see in this psalm promises. Promises of not only their survival, but promises of triumph in wartime. And yet, as I tell you this, it's important that you know that this psalm has a deep history of misinterpretation. A deep history of uh, misinterpretation associated with the words that I've read. From the very earliest associations of Psalm 91, it's been quoted in relationship with Jewish exorcisms, in Israel. The ancient Qumran text calls for it to be sung over the possessed, Psalm 91, and later rabbinic texts call it a song for the possessed. Though much Christian history has been not so much different, this psalm retained the element of exorcism and spiritual warfare and by extension of healing. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you, of course, was the incentive for such thought. And of course, largely this has happened, as you might guess, because it's been linked to the encounter in which Satan himself attempted to use these words from Psalm 91 to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ, and more on that later on. The African church loves Psalm 91. It can be traced back to the ancient Coptic churches. St. Antony, the 3rd century Egyptian founder of 
of uh, monasticism, used this psalm to scatter demonic enemies who manifested as lions and serpents. 1,700 years later, modern Africans still treasure this text. In fact, a Nigerian scholar, David T. Adamo, notes, the Bible offers many promises of protection, but in Psalm 91, all of the promises seem to be brought together in one collection and forming a covenant. The phrase, I pray Psalm 91 over a particular city or nation has become a natural reflex to the culture and to all disasters that happen within the culture. So over and over again, there are accounts of this psalm's saving power. So Psalm 91 has been used throughout history in many ways to convince the believer of every age of their invincibility in spiritual and material warfare. Some scholars would say that it's been one of the most quoted texts in all of the Bible, and that is true now more than ever since the day of COVID. For centuries, Psalm 91 has supplied both Jews and Christians with a refuge in times of trouble of all kinds, including supernatural assault, deadly plague, worldly violence, And the reason being, it imagines the believer, as you heard me read, surrounded by threats, but nevertheless passing through unharmed, defended by angels, and thus the faithful would encounter supernatural enemies yet remain secure. Those in the church who are wonderful expositors, G. Campbell Morgan, for one, called this psalm one of the greatest possessions of the saints. Matthew Henry, the wonderful expositor of the 17th century, said that Psalm 19 is all who live a life close to communion with God are constantly safe under his protection and may therefore live in security and peace of mind at all times. Charles Spurgeon published a commentary of Psalm 91 under the title, The Privileges of the Godly, where he said, A German physician often spoke of Psalm 91 as the best preservative uh, means of times of cholera and in truth is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. He who can live in its spirit will be fearless even if once again London should face the plague. In that case, it was cholera. So obviously, the pandemic of the last few years has allowed Christians to return to this psalm for comfort. And you will see that all over the internet, not only to be told by some that it is not speaking to believers, but speaking of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Philip Jenkins, history professor at Baylor University and the scholar who has so graciously provided the rich background that I just gave to you, said, quote, a global history of Psalm 91 would actually represent an excellent summary of some critical themes in Christian history, of ideas about healing and possession, angelic powers and spiritual evil themes that are far from extinct. Now, I've gone into some very specific detail in this explanation with you this morning about the popular history behind Psalm 91 because not only is it fascinating to understand, but it is a warning to embrace. It is a warning. Is Psalm 91 a soldier's psalm for troops to tuck in their helmets for good luck? 
Is it a psalm of incantations that can be used for the exorcisms of demon-possessed souls? Is it a psalm that should be understood as only applying to the Messiah and not to the reader? What does Psalm 91 teach and how can we understand its powerful message? So this morning I want to open this question to you for a few reasons, and I think it's vital as believers for us to stand these reasons. First, how we understand biblical hermeneutics or the art of interpreting Scripture is vital. It's vital for our lives. Learning how to look at Scripture, especially in regard to the application of the Old Testament saint to the New Testament believer, is an incredible skill that each one of us must embrace. Not understanding how to look at Scripture, not understanding how to ascertain the contextual flow of an argument, not understanding how to see a text in its original setting before applying the text to a contemporary situation is one of the most dangerous situations I think a believer could ever find themselves in. And the reason being is because How you and I understand the Bible, how you and I translate, understand, interpret, understanding the hermeneutics of Scripture will lead you either to superstitiousness about the Word of God that is very difficult to escape, or it will lead you to a refreshingly clear dependence upon the text that has always taught the believers of every age the same truth. I think another reason that why this is such a vital discipline to embrace is because spiritual warfare, folks, is a huge reality in the life of every age and in the life of every believer. So whether you understand Psalm 91 as a soldier's psalm in times of war or as a survivor's psalm in times of spiritual war, Psalm 91 has at its core a message that has deeply resonated with the people of God for thousands of years. Namely, that there is a war before us. There is a war, and Scripture gives us a powerful way to understand how to deal with that war. Dr. Stuart Scott of the Masters University, one-time pastor here at Grace Church for many years, said once that spiritual warfare is a topic that needs constant review because, as he said, quote, I forget that I'm in a war. I'm in a spiritual war 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's sort of like living on red alert, and I don't always have that mindset each and every day, but I need to. The Bible calls us, God calls us, to have that kind of red alert. There's an enemy but we must walk with the victor, end quote. So I want to take our time this morning to begin what will be a two-part look at the message of Psalm 91. And I do that because I want you to see how the message of Psalm 91 has a place of reverence within the heart of believers and how learning the implications of this psalm in daily life can set your world right side up. And now I've divided the psalm into four aspects of God's protection, if you are taking notes, four aspects of God's protection that should be a believer during times of spiritual warfare. And I'm going to unpack this for you a little bit at a time. Four angles, if you will, of divine protection that we see within the context of this psalm so that 
Not only does it have a literal sense in literal context for thousands of years that we need to understand, but it also has a profound application to believers in every age, regardless of the spiritual war that rages against us all. Four perspectives. If you're taking notes, let's just say this up front, and then I'll go back and obviously cover them as we go. The first perspective of divine protection is the promise of protection should secure the believer, and we see that in verses 1 through 4. Next, number 2, the prediction of protection should stir the believer, and we see that in verses 5 through 10. Third, the provision of protection should strengthen the believer in verses 11 and 13. And lastly, the proclamation of protection should satisfy the believer in verses 14 through 16. I'll go over those again later on, but again, all that to say that I pray that this provides for you a a solid foundation for you to look at not only this psalm, but all of God's word in the time that we're together. So let's just begin by looking at the first aspect of God's protection that should guide the believer during times of spiritual warfare, and you're going to see that in verses 1 through 4, namely, number one, the promise of protection should secure the believer. The promise of protection should secure the believer. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destruction, the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. Now, I read that to you because from the very beginning of this psalm, as you obviously can tell, the psalmist proudly, boldly makes a promise of protection in verse 1 that really sets the stage for everything else that we're going to look at. The one who abides, the one who, as the verb in verse 1b is translated, really means spends the night. The one who spends the night in the shelter of the Most High God will also spend the night in the shadow of the Almighty. The one who spends the night in hiding place of God, some translations would say it that way, who is above every God, the true God, the one and living God, The one who is not only in his abode with him, but is so close to the Almighty, the powerful protector, that his shadow covers them as well. This is not just a promise of staying in his castle, if you will. This is not just a promise saying that this glorious room in the fortress of Yahweh is where I make my stand. No, this is a promise of being not only safe in the shelter of the domain of his domination and dominion, but also being so close to the creator of the universe that his glorious shadow of his almighty presence covers you with the intense awareness that he is close to you. And who is this one who cast his shadow over to strengthen you? We see here the psalmist speaks of God with four different names. The very beginning in verse 2. Four different names of God in this first section that give substance and strength to the promises. First, he is the most high, the almighty, verse 1. The Lord, and he says, verse 2, my God, it's personalized. 
Now, unlike the superscription that we just found in Psalm 51, if you were with us, which was a very lengthy understanding of the biblical history of the superscription there that gave us a lot of insight into the psalm itself, here, if you've noticed in Psalm 91, there is no superscription at all. In fact, when I was asked what is the title of this message, I gave a title and then came back to the Legacy Standard Version where it just said, In the Shadow of the Almighty, which is not inspired, but I liked it so much, I said, that's the title, In the Shadow of the Almighty. I like it because that's what we're going to learn about. Now, at this point, we don't know, if you're following me, who made the promise here. We, we know that Scripture is inspired by God, very important. We know that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Peter tells us in his second letter. But who is the original author of this psalm? We are not told. Some would say, based on the superscription of Psalm 90, which comes obviously before Psalm 91, that it's Moses, because there it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So some see in that. Uh, It must have been Moses that wrote this psalm. There are some very interesting comparisons between Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy 32, which is called the Song of Moses, where God's protection and guidance is seen there in Deuteronomy with eagles who have stirred up the nest and hovered over the young with its wings and bore them on their pinions, as we see referenced in verse 4. Other people say that this is a psalm of David, not just of Moses, but of David, most likely because of the reference to strongholds and shields, and particularly because the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Psalm 91 attributes this psalm to King David, but that's not inspired. That's what the original uh, translators of the Greek believed. Some, as you might have noticed as I was reading, that the changing of the pronouns from the first person singular, I, me, my, and the second person singular, you and your, and the third person singular, he, his, and him, led the authors of the Targum to believe that this psalm was a dialogue between David, King David, and his son Solomon. But it's always safest to always go where the text takes you. And in this case, the Holy Spirit has decided to leave it anonymous. And so therefore, we leave it anonymous, which is what we have with the book of Hebrews, if you remember. The book of Hebrews doesn't have an author. It's a spirit-inspired portion of Scripture, which has proved the test of time and canonicity, and it comes to us in its very pure condition. So from the very beginning, we have a promise of protection, to those, to any who find themselves spending the night lodging and abiding in the shelter of the Most High as one that is so close to the holy host of God that they are covered in the shadow of His presence. This morning, I was walking up the stairs with Carl Hardgrove, and as he was walking up the stairs, this is on my mind, and I said, Carl, I'm standing in the shadow of your presence. I'm right behind you. And he chuckled, and I said, Psalm 91. I'm just saying. This is what happens. I am so close to you that I'm in your shadow. That's the idea that he's trying to portray here. And this promise, this truth is so powerful to the author that if you notice, he interrupts his own proclamation in verse 2 
that he knows this hiding place so well that he's speaking of that it forces him to break into an utterance of total security in God, total security in the Most High, and he proclaims his own faith before he applies that faith to us. Verse 2, he says, I will say, not just you to whom I'm speaking, but I myself will say, as I abide in the shadow of his presence, he is my God. You see, he is my refuge. I can't even share with you thoughts about the security and the protection of being with God without interrupting my own thought and allowing myself to tell you he is my God, my security, my stronghold, he is my wall of protection and safety. Some people have noticed that this might be the equivalency of what we see with the Apostle Thomas in the New Testament, in the book of John 20, where when he sees Jesus, he can't help himself but say, my Lord and my God, after he's been challenged to put his finger into his wound. No, my Lord and my God, such a great testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ and his lordship over Thomas. So this is what the author is desperate to communicate to the reader, to those who have ears to hear him. This promise of protection that I have just proclaimed to you here should produce in you the same security that I have in Yahweh. This realization of what it means when the evil of this world is trying to trap you, when the the evil and brokenness of this world is attempting to engulf you, when disease and doubt and discord are present and want to rock your world, when those things are happening and cast you out into the war and to battle of this life alone, there is a place to dwell, to abide, to spend the dark night. And that place is where I live. I live in the shadow of the towering stronghold of God. So when the psalmist identifies God as his God, verse 2b, it's a way of saying that the shelter, the, the, the shadow, the refuge and fortress are for those who really do dwell with God, who really do dwell and trust in him. So the author begins this great psalm with one of the most powerful promises of God's security possible in all of Scripture. And this promise is so amazing that he has to model it for the reader even as he is speaking it because as he prays, he hopes that his response is their response, that you are as secure in the Holy One as I am. Security in your own soul, security in your own experience of living in spiritual war and security that only dwells in the heart of one who dwells in God. Let me say that again. Security that only dwells in a heart that dwells in the Lord. So what is the reason, you might ask, that this believer needs security? Because the implication, as we have shown, is warfare. The implication of the original composition is that the writer is infusing hope into the believer in his day who is experiencing literal war. Yes, as you can see, this psalm is written both literal and symbolically. Literally and symbolically with images that are to be understood in the way he writes. And let me kind of work you through this because I think it's very important. Verse 1, the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
obviously is not speaking of dwelling in a physical dwelling on earth, but he's speaking of God. Shelter in the same way he is speaking of abiding in the shadow of God, knowing that God is spirit, has no shadow to cast, allows us, therefore, to understand that he's using literal images to convey spiritual truths, right? So he is saying something very literal that we understand, and yet still using symbolism to communicate. We know that this writing is during the time of challenge. Obviously, it's during the time of conflict, because the idea of God being a hiding place and a fortress implies a place of protection. And later, as we have already pointed out, there's a description of literal snares and pestilence and arrows and destruction and thousands of people following their, their death. That helps us understand that this is a historical situation, an historical circumstance. But the way he writes, and I think this is important, and that's why I'm dwelling on this. The way he writes allows for some of that imagery to convey something more than just the literal event. Because even in war itself, there's another war that rages in the soldier. There is a war, and then there is a war. There is the war outside of you, and then there's the war inside of you. Even while arrows fly in the air, there are still arrows in the soul. It is not just poetic license. It is a reality behind all wisdom literature, and that what he's doing is alluding to a time of literal conflict symbolically to make us understand about spiritual conflict as well. So the reason that this psalm is considered the soldier's psalm, though not my title, by so many is because they see in the psalm the answer to every mother's fear that has ever walked. Every mother, if they pray for their security of their children physically abiding in God during times of trial, they can rest assured that their children will be safe and sound because Psalm 91 tells them so. But this psalm doesn't apply to every soldier who is bombarded by danger. Nor do they apply to every believer all the time. I want you to note this. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, The blessings here promised are not for all the promises of God. Excuse me, let me read that again. The blessings here promised are not for all the promises of God and cling to them despite, excuse me, I just missed a page. That's why it doesn't make sense what I am saying. I'm going, oh my goodness, that's, that's, that's bad. Let's try that again. Yeah, I'm, as I'm reading it, I'm going, this is a, this is a lie. No. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, once, hopefully this is the only thing he wrote, the blessings here promised are not for all believers, but for those who live in close fellowship with God. Yes. Every child of God looks towards the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most place. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence, end quote. So as you're thinking of that, the author of this psalm, knowing that these words apply to those who, in verse 14, we shall see next time, have loved God and manifest that love and dependence in closeness to God, promises these believers the truth that the Almighty, the one that is mighty over all, will protect them in the most essential way possible. 
And that protection should produce a sense of security in the believer that says along with the psalmist, verse 2b, I trust in my God. Jerry Bridges, author of Trusting God Even When It Hurts, said, Trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Trust is not a passive state of mind. Very, very important. And the psalmist makes this picture of trust even more poignant by what he says in verse 4. He says, He will cover you with his pinions, his feathers. So God here is seen as a creature being with massive wings, wings large enough to encompass a creation of his own making. And that's how the author wants us to understand this security. By the way, this is not unusual for the authors of Scripture to say this. Deuteronomy 32, I alluded to it earlier, Song of Moses. He says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Psalm 17, 8, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Psalm 61, 4, let me dwell in your tent forever, and let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. And then Psalm 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Some have seen, even in this kind of phraseology and imagery, cherubim on the top of the mercy seat, which are described as facing one another. If you remember the pictures and the mercy seat itself and the wings of the cherubim, these angels are outstretched and overshadow the mercy seat where the cherubim are closely associated with God's presence. And so these images of the cherubim atop the mercy seat could symbolize God's presence and holiness. But here the author says and makes the analogy to, no, the Almighty himself is seen as one with wings, as though he is a spirit and a spirit has no kind of wings or or character. The picture is a picture of tenderness and safety. Alexander McLaren, a great Scottish expositor, tells us the image suggests not only the thought of protection, but those of fostering downy warmth, peaceful proximity to a heart that throbs with parental love and a multitude of other happy privileges realized by those who nestle beneath that wing. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that the fact that he would use this kind of analogy, this kind of picturesque idea of God is one of of parental warmth and love and security. So this Initial promise of protection creates or should create in the believer a sense of security. It should secure the believer. Secure in trouble, secure in the season of waiting. 
There is a second aspect, if you're taking notes, a second aspect of God's protection that should guide the believer during times of spiritual warfare. It is seen not only in the promise of protection should secure the believer, but number two, the prediction of protection should stir the believer. Not only the promise of protection should secure the believer, but the prediction of protection should stir the believer. I'm so sorry. The um, alliteration just went a little nuts this time, but it was there. I had to go for it. The prediction of protection should stir the believer. And you see that in verses 5 through 10. The psalmist writes, You will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh, my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you and no plague will come near your tent. Now, right after, if you follow, the psalmist promises the protection of God, now he predicts what kind of protection it looks like and the kind of protection that is meant to stir up the believer to to greater assurance, to greater comfort, to greater love. Why do I say that? Because here in this literal description of the terrors of battle and the arrows and pestilence and destruction and death by the thousands, The believer here, if you notice, is portrayed on this battlefield near his tent being unafraid, verse 5, steadfast and composed, verse 8, knowing that God the Most High is his true dwelling place and his true refuge. And you might ask yourself, what kind of soldier in the midst of arrows flying through the air and disease at night watching a charging enemy forcing them, driving themselves toward you. What kind of believer can only look at this scene of the wretched dying before him without terror or fear? What kind of soldier is this soldier? If I were to portray this in a film, I would use slow motion. You would see explosions erupting beside him, and you would see mounds of mud and dirt flying in the air, and men silently charging him from each side. Their mouths would be open and screaming, but the soldier doesn't hear the shouts and is only fixated on the feet of those before him who are going to die in the ground before him, seeing them be plucked out one by one out of their, his way into judgment before God. Matthew Henry, again, famous commentator of the 17th century, says, No locks or bars can shut out diseases while we carry about with us in our bodies the seeds of them. But surely in the daytime we can look about us. We are not so much in danger. Yes, there is an arrow that flieth by day too and yet flies unseen. There is destruction that wasteth at high noon when we're awake and have all our friends about us. Even then we cannot secure ourselves, nor can they secure us. But here is great security promised to believers in the midst of danger. Thou shalt not be afraid. God, by his grace, will keep thee from disquieting, distrusting fear, the fear with that torment in the midst of great danger. Now, historically, we could trace the devastation 
uh, in these descriptions to battlefields in their different contexts. You could go both to the days of Moses and to the days of David to try to get the idea of what kind of slaughter. Is, is this just hyperbole or is something like this actually something that might happen? If you look at 1 Samuel, you don't have to turn there. You can just note this, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10 you'll see that the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. It goes on in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. Again, just to give you a sense of the the historical aspect of this, chapter 18, verse 7, these words in the Women sang as they were merry and said, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. So though they may not be exact numbers, the idea is that there is such a battle. And again, not making the point that these are descriptions of Psalm 91 in the verses I just read, but that the battlefield of this kind is totally biblical and a history of what it is that is warfare. But to predict, and then follow me here, To predict this kind of massive protection against the foes of God for the people of God should stir the heart. It should stir the heart of those who cannot get to the victims to themselves to stand there in the heat of battle, night and day, day and night, standing firm, only looking at your enemies as they run towards you, slaughtered left and right, for they are the wicked who are getting their recompense And that that terror and that trauma never touches you is unfathomable to me and even incomprehensible. The vast number of tens of thousands of people dying before you, dropping like flies, of course, is a huge incentive for the soldier and his family and all who love him to carry this psalm at their chest. But again, verse 9 tells us that this psalm is only for a certain individual. Verse 9, for you have made Yahweh my refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. You have made Yahweh, and again he interrupts himself as he does earlier in the psalm. My God, my refuge, my stronghold, the one I love. He can't speak of God in this particular way without erupting. He too must be your stronghold. He's going to go on, as we're going to see, to talk about in verses 11 through 13, the provision of protection and the strengthening of of believers. He's going to talk in verses 14 through 16 about the proclamation of protection and the satisfaction of believers. But just for our time today, we'll end here knowing that what you're about to see even in part two, even as we're going to investigate the temptation of Christ as pertains to this particular psalm, is something that is not relegated specifically to warfare, materially, or exorcisms spiritually, but is a part of the way that the believer should dwell in and deal with spiritual warfare. And I want to make that point, and hopefully I do, and we'll let you out early because it's Membership Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the fact that you have given us your word and you have given us tools by which to understand it. And now we ask that you give us the ability to apply it 
to see in these words something that is far from superstition, far from something that can be extracted away from the meaning of the words themselves, but see in these words the hope and security of every believer who dwells and abides makes their tent in you. Father, I pray that the image of abiding in the shadow of you, abiding in the shadow of the Most High, being close to is the image that we understand and contemplate and meditate on until the next time we come to Psalm 91. May it bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.